Hey friends, the Exiles in Babylon Conference is right around the corner, April 18th through the 20th in Boise, Idaho. All the information is at theologyintheraw.com. If you do want to attend live, and I would highly recommend if you can afford it, if you have the time to come out to Boise, Idaho, attend the conference live. Space is filling up, so you want to register ASAP. We are tackling loads of really important and very controversial topics. We're talking about deconstruction and the gospel. We're, at, we're going to hear from people who have had a journey of deconstruction tell us why they did so. We're, we're going to hear from women talking about women, power, and abuse in the church. We're go, going to talk about LGBTQ people and the church. We're talking about different Christian views uh, of politics. Uh, that should be loads of fun, if not really intense. And we just added a very important pre-conference symposium on the theology and politics of Israel-Palestine. And we're going to have different viewpoints represented. Various discussions are going to be engaged in with that really important conversation. So come to Boise. You can ask questions. You can engage the speakers, engage other people who are at the conference. It is loads of fun. It really is, I would say, the highlight of my year. So again, April 18th to the 20th, Boise, Idaho. Check out all the information at theologyintherod.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. And if you are watching on YouTube, you will notice that um, I have a new studio. Well, I moved uh, to a different corner in my basement and uh, my daughter, Aubrey, helped me with all the new lighting, the background, the cool bookshelf you see over to my what is that? My, my right shoulder there. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, you find the aesthetics a bit more pleasing than the old school, um, the Aldrin Rob bookcase, which is just over there, but you can't see it. So really excited about the new studio. Got a new mic, got a new soundboard and everything. So hopefully this sounds good for those of you who are watching, but are listening to the podcast. My guest today is my good friend and uh, just a guy who I have so much respect for. AJ Soboda has a PhD from Birmingham University. He's Associate Professor of Bible and Theology at Bushnell University and a lead mentor for the Doctor of Ministry program at, uh, on spiritual formation and soul care at Friends University, author of many books, including his most recent book, which uh, really releases the end of February, called The Gift of Thorns, Jesus, the Flesh, and the War of Our Wants. AJ is one of the best Christian writers that I know. He's just a, a fat, just super creative, thoughtful, and um, yeah, I just I love it when he publishes a new book. So, please welcome back to the show for the fourth time, the one and only Doctor AJ Swoboda. AJ, how are you doing this fine uh, Tuesday morning? You know, Preston, any day that begins with me coming into my office to have a conversation with my friend Preston Sprinkle in his new studio <laughs> is is a good day. Yeah. <laughs> the mercies of the Lord are new every day, and that is no less the case yeah. today. I'm, I'm terrific. It's a joy to see you. It's been uh, all too long. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Always an honor to talk to you. And yeah, this new studio, just for my audience, you know, we're, we're still working with some of the lighting. And, and AJ said it, it, on his end, it, it does look like a North Korean concentration camp from his angle. I, I think this <laughs> platform does clean itself up a bit. So I'm hoping that it's a little bit brighter and cheerier and that my face isn't so darn red on the final version. Mm -hmm. So we're, mm -hmm. we're working with... Um, minimal space here and so i'm told yeah. i'm supposed to have depth behind me but what, ah. what you can't see is i'm as far as i can go and my lighting over here is as far as it can go and if i get any closer i'm gonna get a suntan burn 
so yeah, we're wow, working with the light. We're working with space you. issues here in the theology uh, uh, basement. But anyway, again, yeah. well, you just so you know, you, you Preston, you have an audience that for years has been praying for your internet connectivity um, <laughs> because there's 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 uh, probably every fourth episode oh. we all we all get to hear you bemoan oh. the. The, the oppressive internet of Boise. Idaho. And I have so Starlink. I have Starlink. So Elon oh, apparently yeah. is overselling his, uh, yeah. Yeah, I just found out it's actually the uploads. It, the download, I'm, I'm pushing 80 to 150 to 250 mega, megabytes. Is that what? Um, that's the upload that's still around. It can be 8, 10, which I'm, I hear, you know, isn't, isn't that good. Anyway, welcome to 2024. You're my first actual so i i, I record the, the the podcasts that have been coming out in 2024 so far were pre-recorded i mean recorded before in fact in 2023 you're my first actual interview in oh live 2024 uh what a great way to start uh 2024 i'm giddy i'm giddy with <laughs> anticipation i really don't know how to control these emotions i have referred to you as one of if not my favorite christian writer what was that the first one i read a glorious start. Oh, I remember your word. email that you sent to me. Yeah, it was it, it. It was one of those times when I was discouraged reading a book because I was like, I genuinely battled with envy because I think you and I both, when we read books written by Christians, they might be good content, maybe great content, might be decent writing, but then you go and read like a professional writer, and you're like, oh, but there's there's a difference. I mean, we all most. People know how to write, read and write, right? Most people. But that's worlds apart from being a writer. It's like people know how to speak, but it doesn't mean you can go on stage and give a speech, right? So you're one of the few people I know that is a Christian and a writer, but is an actual, like if you lost your faith, you could make a living, I think. Wow. Right. You're wow. a writer. You're, 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 the content is awesome. I love how at the end of each chapter, I don't know if you do this in your new books, I haven't read it yet. Um, You'll, 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 you'll chum some ideas and thoughts. And then in the most creative way, like the last paragraph of each chapter, somehow you'll, you'll, you'll return to a thought that you kind of chummed early mm. on or something. I don't, is that, is, is that intentional or do you, does that even, is that some, I, I think you did that in, I'm pretty sure Glorious Darkness and the Dusty Ones. Um, I can't remember mm. if that's just a style you always do or if you'd played with that in just previous books or... Yeah, you you know, um, first of all, your words are um, beyond flattering, and I, I, it's odd that you, it's weird. I'm, I'm just noticing in my own body how uncomfortable I feel hearing you describe my writing this way, because largely, I, I am, I'm actually very hard on myself. I'm very, I'm, I'm very, um, I, I often do not believe in myself or the gifts that God has given to me, and so I feel a sense of almost. Um, what, what do they call it? Uh, that, that concept where you just, you, you feel like you're, uh, you don't live up to the thing that you, you, what, what's that word that they, that they use regarding, uh, people who become professors or doctors that they, for a while they experience, um, like they're fraud, they uh, feel fraudulent or they, yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. Like, um, um, so I, I feel I'm, honored, but at the same time, I'm struck at how awkward that feels. Yeah. As a reader, you know, as a reader, I love when I read a book where, um, the author has gone out of their way to structure their work in, in, in a way in which, um, I leave a chapter feeling as though, um, they not only 
um, have set me up for what uh, for what is coming, but simultaneously have done the work of 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 showing me that they had reasons for bringing up the stuff that they they brought up. You know, it's a weird, it's a weird thing on a sitcom or a or a TV show. You have to end an episode, you know, with some sort of thing that invites the reader, the, the, the watcher into the next episode. So I just mm. learned that, frankly, from watching uh, West Wing. I mean, at the end oh, of the day, yeah. pretty much everything that I know is, is because of West Wing. So. That makes sense. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're but that, Thanks but, for offering but those. That, again, not, not to keep harping on how awesome you are, but you pay attention to other expressions of art and culture, and you, you either intentionally or just intuitively integrate that into your writing. That, 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 but that's a yeah. writer. That's what a writer oh. does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Einstein's uh, famous line of uh, there's nobody that's brilliant. They're just good at hiding their sources. <laughs> um, and, and in a sense, you know, I, I, I've just been able to learn from other people that are really, really great. Um, and that's what I It's so funny. You, you describe me how you don't receive how you're, you're on self-critic and felt, again, the word that we were exploring, not my word, but what you were harping at was, was uh, fraudulent. I, I felt like a fraud during my entire PhD program. I was like literally looking around thinking like, what are they going to find out that I don't belong? <laughs> yes. Yep. yep. I, I, I wouldn't, yes. I, would, so I go to seminars and I just like sit there like sweating, like, what are they going to yep. check my papers? <laughs> you know, and like yep. realize yeah. my application was like yeah. mixed up with somebody else or something. And then they call you doctor and you have to look behind I you know. to see who's, yeah, it's called, I, I, it escaped me. It's called imposter syndrome. We, yes. we all experienced that. We all experience it on some level with the gifts that God has given to us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Preston, for your words. Yeah. Let's dive into your book, um, The Gift of Thorns. I love the subtitle, Jesus, the Flesh, and the War of Our Wants. See, even that subtitle, it's like so mm. beautiful and brilliant and provocative. Uh, give us a yeah. snapshot and then let, let's just maybe see if there's a, tra a rabbit trail, rabbit yeah. hole you want to dive down into. Um, every book I've ever written, and may, this may be the case for you, any project I've ever undertaken um, is rooted in the soil of something from my life that has needed to be fleshed out. One of my favorite parts about writing is that it's uh, it's a it's a way to take quiet space and obscurity to think about something before you talk about something. And I, I um for me, it, it actually, the origin story for this book um, goes back to uh, an epiphany I had when my wife, I hate, so I hate my birthday. Really? Um, yeah. It, it, and it, 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 I don't have many things in my life that I hate. And actually, it's not just I hate my birthday um, when I turn my new age. The week after my birthday, it is predictable. It is I go into about one week after my birthday, I go into a very deep and dark depressive state um, every single time. Uh, this last year was one of the worst. Um, for a week, I was in the darkest dungeon of my soul uh, I think I'd, I'd ever been. And I, I'm talking, Preston, not, not I'm sad, but like um, there, there have been years where I've, I've experienced suicidal ideation, not wanting to live, not... Um, knowing why I'm a human, feeling like I'm a failure as a dad, feeling like I'm a failure as a husband, um, all these sorts of things. And um, a couple of years ago, I noticed that when my wife would ask me what I want for my birthday, that question really angered me. I never knew. I, I never had an answer. And, and I certainly did not. This is upon reflection. I certainly did not want to have a birthday party. Um, I don't think I've ever had a birthday party for myself uh, I've certainly never thrown myself one, but I probably only had two or three in my life. And it goes back to a series of stories from my childhood that when I was a kid, a child of divorced parents and an only child, 
Um, my parents threw me a one or two birthday parties, but I remember there were not very many kids there. And I remember the shame of feeling like when there's a party for me, nobody shows up. And so I don't want to have a birthday party because I don't want to see who's not going to come. Okay. So when my, here's, here's the genesis of this book. Um, when my wife would ask me what I want for my birthday, it dawned on me. I don't know what I want. Um, like I don't, I literally don't know what I want. I don't, I don't know what I want to celebrate. I don't know why we would celebrate. I certainly don't know what a gathering would look like. And that little story, that little silly, seemingly un, unimportant story opened up a jar for me, um, opened up a whole world for me of something I frankly just never thought about. And that is that um, I, I have no problem being discipled in uh, the way I live. I have no problem being discipled and taking a day of rest or repentance or living into healthy rhythms as a Christian, daily office, prayer. I had never once invited the work, the healing work of Christ and the Holy Spirit to enter into the cavernous realm of my desires. I can control the way I live and what I do but the desires have remained unchanged. And, and it opened up a whole world for me. And basically the big idea is this, our desires and our wants and our longings are perhaps the most important thing Jesus desires to disciple in our life. And it is simultaneously one of the most vexing and painful places to invite Jesus to enter into. Because for many of us, we feel as though our desires have no hope. And the things that we want and the things that we want that we don't want. We've struggled with things for years and struggled with unwanted desires. And we've struggled with um, temptations that have just never gone away. And we get to a point where we just kind of buy this idea that the work of Christ counts for everything but what I want. This journey uh, for me of writing uh, The Gift of Thorns was a journey of inviting the power of Jesus into my desires. And it was a wild journey. I, it was a very, this was the most painful book I've ever written. And it's simultaneously the most scary book I've ever released. Because I know the minute you start talking about desires, you start talking about things that really matter for people. And so in a way, that's the, that's the genesis of the story. The, the whole book is about how are we formed in our desires? How are we formed in our wants? How are we formed in our longings? So can you give us some examples when you say, well, I guess those are good three words, uh, desires, wants, longings. Um... Because as you're talking, my mind kept going to like desire for food or comfort or, uh, you know, uh, these. But yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're going far beyond that. But it, does it include that sort of thing? Like when I heard Gift of Thorns, I, it made me think of like I need to do more like ice baths, you know, or intermittent fasting. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, or, <laughs> I'm, I'm supportive of ice, ice baths, but my book says little about the topic. Okay. <laughs> let, yeah, let me give you let me give you let me give you an example. Um, let me give you an example of the kind of thing that, I, that I'm talking about. Um, this was this was four years ago, and this is I've shared this story in, in a couple of environments, but I don't think I've shared it in a in a place like this. About four years ago, after my wife and I moved from Portland, we'd planted a church. Before I entered into academic stuff and and being a teacher and and, and kind of a, a public thinker, um, we pastored. And uh, when we stepped down from that and moved to Eugene, um, I had this very clear sense that the Lord Jesus wanted me to take a year and not preach. Now that that was in, and not do any public speaking. That was a huge deal for me because one of my favorite things to do is I love to preach and I love to speak. 
It's one of my favorite things to do. I love being in a room and seeing people encounter God because I was able to share something. I love that. It's one of my favorite things in life. Um, and it made no sense. A year, a year, it, which when, when your life is being a public speaker or a preacher, that affects the bottom line. It affects like how you structure your budget and your family. It's, it was a really big homiletical fast. It was a big speaking fast. And what I discovered during that time was that for a lot of my soul, um, I did not love preaching because I loved preaching. And I didn't love speaking because I loved to communicate what God was saying. There were some deep desires in me that Jesus needed to get his hands on. Namely, the desire to be wanted, the desire to be needed, the desire to be adored, the desire to be looked up to. And that those particular desires, which were rooted in some childhood experiences of feeling like I was not being seen, particularly by my father, that essentially I had been using the pulpit and my speaking ministry as a way uh, to salve deep fatherhood wounds. And I could not have seen that had it not been for taking a year off. Usually fasts reveal something of the structure of your heart. Um, they reveal something of the, the things that you want. When you stop doing something, you all of a sudden realizing the things that you desire. Um, and so in a way, that's a great example of the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about, uh, is that most of our desires reveal something of a deeper nature. I, I, it was, uh, it was that, uh, Richard Keyes who wrote a, a book about um, uh, the idols of the heart. Calvin talked about the heart is the the uh, the fact the idol factory, right? Yeah. This, this idea that we have our heart has a way of making idols out of everything, and we constantly need to get at what are the things that motivate us and drive us and make us who we are. Um, and very many many of those desires are connected to childhood stories. What one of my aspects of this book was dealing with my own um, my own sexuality and 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 wrestling with some stories from my childhood that I had never addressed. I had just sort of stuck them under a carpet and pretended like Jesus would deal with them and they would go away as though the minute I believed with Jesus in Jesus, um, all this stuff just sort of ended. And, and that, that didn't happen for me. Part of being a Christian for me was allowing God to get under the carpet and finally get into those stories. And what I discovered was that Jesus not only can heal us in the present, he can actually heal us retroactively, that he can go back in our story and meet us in the past. Um, he is the alpha, the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And he was there at the beginning for me. And, and the God, that, so wrestling with my own sexuality as, as, a, as, a, as a man was allowing Jesus into my desires. And that's scary stuff, man. Scary stuff. Can you give us some more details there that you share in your book? I mean, I want to go beyond what you share in the book, but because I, I yeah, heard you talk um, about this. Yeah, I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, I had a, a number of, of experiences as a child that were um, unchosen, a number of things that happened to me, uh, sort of traumatic um, sexual experiences that put on me as a, at a very young age, a, a whole variety of um, pressures, temptations, identities that um, were not words that God was speaking mm. over me. And um, I, I, I actually feel like for the sake of the conversation, it's not helpful to go into particular detail because I, I want to keep it general for the fact that every single person I suspect that's listening to this has some sort of story that goes back to uh, their earliest years in which their identity and, and their story kind of 
kind of collide. But essentially, yeah, I, uh, last December, so this is not this December, but last December, I went for three days on a um, retreat with my uh, therapist to get into my story. I was sort of tired of not getting into my story. Uh, I was just evading it, running away from it. And I would say the most, one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life is setting, getting that phone number and setting up that three-day session. And I met for three days and got into my story. And what I found was that, do you remember when Jesus says, um, let, the, let the children come mm -hmm. to me? Um, we always assume that means like literal physical children. And I think that means that's part of it. But um, we often don't let the little child that is our, our, our sort of childhood self come to Jesus. And I had never let the little child come to Jesus. Mm, I had wow. never let that little kid with those experiences come to Jesus and sit on his lap and, and to allow him to touch m m my heart and my mind. And what I found is that Jesus invites all of us to let those little children that little child in us to come to Jesus. And that is the journey of healing. That's the journey of the work of Christ. Yeah. So I think that's probably the best. The, yeah. The, yeah. Do you think, I'm curious, could you have healed well without like a professional therapist? Um, I'm a huge fan of therapy. Oh, I, if you asked me yeah. five years ago, I would have said, oh, I guess if you're really messed up, then, you know, find a therapist. Now I'm like, I don't know how, I don't know how anybody yeah. Yeah. raises kids without like a full yeah. <laughs> solid yeah. therapist, you know? Yeah. You know, um, let me be, uh, let me say up front just to, just to give a, not a trigger warning, but just a word to the therapists mm -hmm. that are listening to this. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to share something that could be interpreted as though it is like anti-therapist yeah. and it's not in any way, shape or form. Um, I need you to know I have a therapist. I, I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for my therapist and I pay my therapist very well. So, um, I, I'm the, the first believer in therapy. Um, where does therapy come from? Um, you know, where, where does, where does the, the work of therapy come from? Um, there's actually been a number of people who have written about this, uh, this, this idea and most histories of therapy and counseling, um, actually, um, kind of show that, that the work of develop, the need for therapy arose directly as a response to the Protestant Reformation. And because when the Protestant Reformation took over, um, when, when Luther, you know, and, and the Reformation took over. There was one aspect of Catholic practice that was vehemently rejected, although Luther did not. He still believed it needed to be con connected, connect, committed, con continued, but it didn't. And that is the, the practice of uh, confession, of going to a priest and naming your sin. And of course, when the Protestants stopped doing this, uh, essentially what happened is it left a void. There was no longer a place to go and name your sins to somebody who could offer you some sort of absolution or something like that. I'm not, I'm not getting, I'm just saying I, that's what I believe confession yeah, should no, be. Yeah. But when you go read first John one, um, where, where John says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to purify you from all righteousness. That is confession to God, right? When we confess to God, we are forgiven. There's another kind of confession in James in which James says, when you confess your sins to one another, you will be healed. And he does not say you'll be forgiven. He says, you'll be healed. James, by James, confessing five, to James one another. five. Yeah. James yeah. five. So here's what's happened is most Protestants, we do John, 1 John 1, 9, we experience forgiveness, but we don't do James 5. And so we don't experience healing. And so we are forgiven, but not healed. And I think, I think that ultimately, in many respects, the therapist world has had to pick up the slack because in many Christian communities, there is no way to name your sin and find healing in those stories. It makes me think... Um, um, First of all, you've, I, I probably gained a few Catholic followers 
for that little tidbit. So thank you. Thank you for that, AJ. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It made me, it makes me think something I've often said, a lot of people have said this, that, you know, seminaries, this is going to sound too harsh, but you're, you're a seminary professor. So I think you'll, I think you'll agree, you know, that seminaries exist because the church isn't doing what it should be doing, could be doing. Like, like if, if, theological it's had to make up yeah. it's had to make up yeah. or something yeah yep. i mean in, yep. in a sense the the this <laughs> we could be that podcast or even the i run a nonprofit, and and it's like i would love to i would love to be out of work where not a single church is calling us because they're already resourcing their congregation on how to you know helping parents love their lgbtq kids and and helping leaders understand theology of sexuality i mean like i in a sense i i would love to work to not get another phone call because churches are just doing it, you know, mm-hmm. but like, mm-hmm. but I, and I don't, I, I don't even say that in a bad way. Like I, um, I, yeah, a lot of non, yeah, nonprofits, Christian organizations that aren't specifically local churches. I, is it, is it a terrible world we live in that they exist because they're filling voids that the church isn't doing or I, I don't, so it's not even, it's not even really like a negative statement. It's just kind of an acknowledgement. In, in no way, shape or, yeah, that could come across as a negative statement about the church. Uh, and I simultaneously don't want it to come across as a negative statement about therapists because there have been some folks who have called the the sort of therapist world, the secular priests of society that they have had to make up for the priestly role that somebody had. But when you look at the healing power of confession, when you look at, for example, John Wesley's ministry, how did he, why did, why did the, the Methodist movement in its earlier years expand and grow as fast as it did? Because he would go into cities and he would start communities where you would gather and confess your sins to one another. Wow. And it exploded. It exploded. I think if a church, if, if a community can, could find a way to create confessional communities right now, and that, that Kurt Thompson right now, that's what his whole thing really? is around okay. developing confessional communities. If we develop confessional communities, the healing that comes from that. So you asked me about therapy. Um, I have learned in my later years, I'm 42. I feel like I'm starting to do my swan dive into my midlife crisis. <laughs> I am just now beginning to recognize the power of having a safe community of small people whom I can tell everything to. Wow. And that they know that the, the nooks and crannies of my deepest desires and even the power of naming those desires is part of the healing process. If I can simply name it and bring it into the light, so much of its power mm. is deflated. Um, unfortunately, what happens when we don't have a place to name our desires, we find a place for those desires to find their outlet. And, and often we find them on the internet or in social media, which for some people is the only place where they can actually uh, tap into uh, the kinds of things that they're, they're wrestling with. But man, the power, yes, yeah, so the answer is, good night, are therapists so important to us? But more importantly than that is we all were made by God to need a community to confess. You know, I just had, a, well, John Mark Comer on the podcast. It's, it's weird because I recorded it back in like November. It released. Uh, it'll re, it, it will have released before this conversation is released. So the chronologies are so whacked. Anyway, listeners will have probably heard that. But he, he said a lot of the same stuff that, that he's. He's highly prioritized having a small group of people where he's incredible. I mean, he's, he was talking about like opening up his like bank account where he, I think he even said um, that he's his small group of committed disciple, disciplers, disciples. They share their finances. Yeah. With each other. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, like they, they, they yeah. don't, if he makes a purchase more than a thousand dollars, he won't do it unless he gets approval from other people that have access to us, you know. 
And and I, I and I, I I was struggling with that a little bit. I mean, maybe I'm more of an introvert, or maybe I don't have that kind of ty- type of community around me here. Um, so part of it was like, ah, that'd be so awesome, but that'd be super scary. <laughs> like, would I be yeah, willing to do yeah, that? Yeah. But his response was, I'm so scared of getting complacent, or however he worded it. Like, I, I so know myself that if I don't have this, I will drift away. Like I, I won't live the radical Christian life that I know is where joy is found, where prosperity is found, where true living is found. And and the only, I know objectively that this is the best way to do it. Is it hard? Oh, heck yeah, it's hard. Is it hurt? Absolutely. Oh. You know, but like, so I, I'm rather that's, that's, I'm hearing you say the kind of same thing, emphasizing confession is a big component of that. Yeah. Um, can, can I, can I actually go to what is, I think, a, 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 an, an equally important part of this conversation around desire, around the, the fact that, you know, we, we live in this kind of new, new moment, as, as you're keenly aware, we live in this new moment where um, we, we are given freedom to pretty much do whatever we desire, as long as it, it doesn't break the law. So mm-hmm. we, what's that Richard Rorty line where he says he's a, that, that postmodern philosopher who says in the postmodern world, truth is whatever your colleagues let you get away with. That's pretty much where we're at uh, <laughs> is we're at this place where um, it's okay. As long as, uh, as long as the the laws and the rules um, say it's okay, which is actually a very terrifying society <laughs> Be- because we're, we're one amendment away from, you know, very dangerous stuff. I mean, whatever, all that to say, um, there's this little chapter, this little tiny chapter in a book that Dallas Willard wrote. It's it's obscure. I actually have never heard anybody quote this chapter before. I'm sure other people have, but it's this obscure chapter called Nietzsche versus Jesus Christ <laughs> uh, that Dallas Willard wrote in uh, in a place. Uh, How is the uh, chapter of that well, title not quoted? Isn't that great? Oh my goodness, great! Such a great chapter. And in the book, he he outlines basically what Nietzsche accomplished, Friedrich Nietzsche accomplished, and what has come as a result of the the revolutions that came about. And, and the basic idea is this, is that, that through a series of major philosophical turns and shifts in the 1800s and 1900s, we have arrived at this place where we no longer have a difference between the will and desire. So basically, we see one's will, what they're supposed to do, what the, what the right thing is, the good thing is, and desire are, the sa- are now the same thing. So the, the will is what you want. I mean, that's, a, that's American ideology right there. You, you do you. I mean, it's the, it's the whole concept of like, your desire is your will. Your desire m- means you must do that thing. So he, he has this, this, this section in there about how that leads to a world where we no longer know how to desire. Because when you have every possibility open to you, the human heart cannot handle infinite desires. And so when it is given endless options, <laughs> it all of a sudden stops desiring. It, you know this. It's called choice paralysis. When you go to the grocery store and say, have a yeah, thousand yeah. cereals <laughs> to choose from, and you walk the aisle for an hour trying to find the cereal that's going to bring joy to your week, and you can't do it. I mean, I have students in my classroom that experience this all the time, cannot make a single, single de- 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 decision because every decision is a possibility. That when everything is possible, it leads to paralysis. And, and what he says is, uh, Willard, uh, Willard says in Jesus Christ, Nietzsche versus Jesus Christ, is that we live in a secular world where because all desires are now permittable, we now lo- no longer 
have the capacity to desire because we don't know what to desire. Um, Let me just read this to you. This is direct from his uh, article, Nietzsche versus Jesus Christ. He says, this is the new prison. This is how the prison works. Someone says, what shall I do? And we reply, we reply, well, do what you want. And the honest person says, well, I don't know what I want. And Willard says, what do you want? What do you really want? Can you see how this Nietzsche perspective on freedom traps us? Because now we don't know what we want. And in this structure, because as living beings, we have to act. Desire as a reasonable human capacity defaults into impulse. Curiously enough, we wind up in a world where we desire to desire. We live in a Viagra society. It is a society that is seeking to desire to desire. And addiction in its many forms is an attempt to escape the loneliness that is enforced by a will uprooted from a world of truth and reality. Okay, a Viagra society. When was that written? Yeah, it was Vi- so I This oh, was written Willard, so, okay. in, Yeah, I want to say 1999. It's one of his kind of it's again it's in, in, in an edited volume that he wrote. But that, that that phrase a Viagra society. We are a society that is seeking to arouse arousal because we don't know how to desire. How, how do we solve that? And how does loving Jesus and knowing God actually arouse godly desire? That Christians should be the most desirous people in the world. Um, Desire, of course, in the New Testament has a pretty interesting storyline. The same word for desire, um, epithumia, can be very, very, very uh, negative. Mm -hmm. It can be lust, you know, lusting for things that are not good. But it can simultaneously be the same word for longing. Mm -hmm. When Paul says, I long to come and be with you. When Jesus says, I long to go celebrate Passover. Um, the same word epithumia, lust, can be the same word as desire, as longing. And so Jesus wants to lead us into, take that desire that God created us to have and nurture it into in, in such a way that we don't need to live in a, with a spiritual Viagra, right? We get, to in, we get to lean into the desires of God. This episode is sponsored by Biblingo. Uh, Biblingo is an incredibly effective and efficient way to actually learn the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. Okay, so as many of you guys know, I'm a huge advocate for learning the biblical languages and not just for pastors or like theology professors, but for any Christian who's interested in diving deeper into the meaning of the scriptures, it is incredibly helpful to know Greek and Hebrew. I also understand, however, that you know, few people have the time and money to go to seminary or get a Bible college degree and, you know, take all the classes you need to take in in order to learn biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. This is why I'm so excited to introduce to you Biblingo. Biblingo uses modern methods of learning languages that make learning intuitive and fun. Some people like me are intimidated at the very idea of learning a language, especially an ancient language like Greek or Hebrew. But with Biblingo's research-backed approach, learning Biblical Greek and Hebrew is not only achievable, but it's actually, I'm serious, it's actually fun. Uh, Biblingo has helped people from all walks of life uh, dive deeper into the Bible through its original languages. All you need is 15 minutes per day, 15 minutes per day. Um, Consistency is the key ingredient to learning any language. And with just 15 minutes per day, you can be reading the Bible in Greek or Hebrew in just over a year. 
Uh, Biblingo breaks down the learning process into interactive activities that can be completed in just a few minutes a day. Um, this makes it really fun and actually uh, doable. You can actually do this consistently every single day. So if you want to dive deeper into your knowledge of the scriptures, just go to biblingo.org forward slash T-I-T-R. Okay, that's biblingo, that's B-I-B-L-I-N-G-O dot org forward slash T-I-T-R. And you can sign up for a free 10-day uh, trial run. Okay, so try it out for 10 days, see how you like it. And if you decide to sign up, you can uh, use the code TITR and you can get 30% off a subscription for a full year. Okay, so biblingo.org forward slash TITR. Check it out for you know 10 days for free. Then use the code TITR to get 30% off a full one-year subscription. I really hope you guys check this out. This episode is sponsored by Green Chef. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company that delivers whole food to your whole body. They're committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to your body's overall well-being. As I often say on this podcast, you know, I try to eat as healthy as I can, um, especially the older I get, I could literally feel it in my body when I load it full of junk food and or not just junk food per se, but even just processed stuff that's filled with tons of fat and sodium and sugar and ingredients that you can't even pronounce. This is why I'm excited about our brand new sponsor, Green Chef. Whether you're uh, keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. And they actually have a new, uh, they a new gut and brain health meal plans that include a whole bunch of different nutritious dinners, clean snacks, and functional drinks crafted to actively support the well-being of your gut and enhance cognitive health. I can use a bit of that. Um, these nutrient-dense gut and brain health recipes are developed in partnership with registered dietitians, and they actually improve digest digestion, reduce bloating, and also boost energy and immunity. So I invite you to ditch the corn dogs and frozen taquitos and try out Green Chef. Just go to greenchef.com forward slash uh, 60 TITR and use the code 60, that's 60 TITR to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. I mean, that, that's a crazy good deal, 60% off. So again, go to greenchef.com forward slash 60, 60 TITR and use the code 60 TITR. I experienced this on two levels and this might even be periphery to, to some of the points you're getting at, but I mean the the kind of physical and and the intellectual. Let let me tease these out a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts. The physical is just how most people living in America that are lower middle class and above just have access. Like you said, a grocery store, like a refrigerator bursting with food, a cupboard with cans. Of, I mean, it's just like that's just that's just humanly unheard of in the history of the world. Not not just you can satisfy the second you feel a hunger pain instantly, but with a, 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 a wide range of options. Like that, that's just, that's just crazy. I've been um, trying to integrate intermittent fasting. Uh, so going 16 hours without eating. So like, like right now I'm, I'm on hour while or something. Um, and the next four hours, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. Like I'm like, I've gone 12 hours without eating and I'm drinking my coffee black right now. And I, I like cream in my coffee and I'm just like, and it's like, I'm so weak Yes. <laughs> yes. that what was just the normal 
way humans live. They would go a day, you know, I don't know, hunter gatherer days, whatever, you know, they, you know, they go hunt their meal and, you know, have one meal every couple of days. I, well, I, I don't know, whatever, however that works. But like, just to go, just doing something so depriving yourself of such, not even depriving, just delaying it just by a couple of hours, you know, but like the satisfaction you get when you do that, food tastes better, uh, drink tastes better, just, you know, that kind of delayed gratification. Or I, have, I have been doing ice baths, which I I don't know anybody that hates cold water more than I do. Mm, mm. It is four minutes of absolute hell. I have to, I mean, I'm going to confess, I have to listen. I listen to, I've got a playlist that has Metallica, uh, Lip Biscuit, and a few other kind of punk rock, <laughs> you know, and I just sit there and I headbang for four minutes in the ice bath. I won't tell you what comes out of my mouth when I'm when I'm sitting. But like, but, but that's wise. Huh? Yeah. That's wise. No, let's keep that keep that quiet. I may lose some followers, may gain some followers. But I get, but but then the but the the reward you get, like it's they say it's hard to feel depressed after an ice bath because you're just flooded with all these endorphins. Like I did it. It's like you come out and you feel like you can conquer the world. It's crazy. All that to say, these are just super mundane. Just like. Just a little bit of delayed gratification, a little bit of resisting comfort, a little yes. bit of embracing the 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 thorns, you know, just like almost like an artificial thorn of like an ice, you know. But like it just it just informs us that God has designed humanity to live a more pleasurable life when it's not just indulging in every pleasure sensor that is satisfying every kind of longing for some kind of pleasure. So that's the kind of artificial. I'm, I'll be quicker with the next one. For me, what I've been struggling with recently, you asked me offline how I'm doing. Um, this is a, a minor part of some struggle in my life, but it's it's so real as, as a consumer of information. I just feel overwhelmed with all the books and pieces of information I feel like I have to consume. Two podcasts a week, I feel like I need to be an expert in that field. You know, I've been doing, as many people know, a ton of reading and listening on the Israel-Palestine conflict. You know, I'm you know, diving into women and ministry stuff and, and how many books are on there and 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 then you get a flood of pushbacks. You need to read this. You need to read that. You need to read this article. You miss. I just I just feel like this overwhelming, almost debilitating sense of there's so much information out there that I feel like I need to consume and want to consume, and I just feel depleted. Sometimes. My my book list is just like growing with all these different topics, and it's like I'll start to read this, and I need to read this, and another book, another book in the mail, and they did that. And I just get defeated. Do you feel like that? Like you're you're a consumer of it. All, all the it, time. it is what I'm experiencing, especially that the, the first part. I think it is kind of self evident. Like, yeah, our physical desires. We need to discipline those. This this information world we live in that's exacerbated with the internet and social media and everything. And 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 I'm just wrestling with that. I, I, do you wrestle? Yeah, yep. would love to yep. hear your thoughts. On yeah, that. two 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 responses. And thank you for your own. The, well, how healing it must be to be in this confessing community today, <laughs> Preston, to have a space uh, outside of your cold bath to be able to speak what's going on in your life or with you. Yeah, the the two, two immediate things come come to mind. Um, a really important dynamic to the conversation about desire. Um, is revisiting some some of the core ideas that St. Augustine had in the fourth century around what he called ordering of loves, uh, the ordering of desire. And that is learning that this is the lifelong journey of learning to love the right things the most and the least things the less. When I, th- when I look at my book list, here, here's a struggle I have, is that um, I give the same amount of weight because of that book list. I give the same amount of weight um, to reading N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis uh, uh, to books that are being written today. The, the idea that I would wait, I'm, I'm just saying, 
it is important for me to deal with first the the, the deepest thinkers. I need to I need to deal with I want to deal with N.T. Wright um, before I deal with most of the books at the local Christian bookstore. And I, I, I'm saying that as a publisher, a, a person yeah, who yeah, writes yeah. books. Okay, so I'm being critical myself here. Um, so he, the ordering of love says you cannot do everything, and and actually the myth of getting to do everything is is the heart of the deception of the serpent to the woman in the Garden of Eden, who was told, you can eat from every tree but one. There were boundaries. And the serpent says, no, you should have more. The, the, the heart of the deception of the man and the woman in the garden was the deception of universal, uh, unbound, unrestrained, everything is yours. And the minute we believe we can do everything, we can have everything, it kills us. It is actually critical that we learn restraint of desire to say, um, I don't get everything and I shouldn't have everything. And it's a gift to be limited and finite. So example of this, I, my exercise pattern probably is a little lighter than yours. I go, I walk. That's when I listen to my podcasts and pray and whatnot. And when I walk in, in my neighborhood, there are these houses in which the neighbors always keep their garage door up. And I will tell you right now, the greatest point of envy in my life of anything I struggle with more than I struggle with other writers or other thinkers is garage envy because everybody else's garage is totally upkept, <laughs> perfect, ordered. And I come back to my house and I'm like, I so resonate with this. I so right. I see it all. And I come back, where does that come from? Garage envy. I don't know where this comes from. And then all of a sudden I come home. And I've got an awesome 12-year-old son at home who wants to play ping pong with me. And I'm in a season of life where I can't make my garage do what I want it to do. So I've actually had to make a choice. Do I want a son who experiences love or do I want a sanctified garage? And, and actually a point of discipleship for me is to recognize, embrace the broken garage and play ping pong. Wow. Yeah. I cannot do it all. Yeah. I struggle with the exact same. I mean, that you even the, the, if when you start opening up these doors of your life, you realize that this battle is everywhere, right? Yep, yep, yep. On the you you brought up as well the physical stuff which you talked about. Hey, you can get a pizza at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go back to Genesis one and two, um, there is a very distinct difference in the garden story. There's a very distinct difference between how God creates the animals and how God creates the humans. Now, there, I, I, as you have, I've heard people say this. You know, the man was created first before the woman. So the man is more important. And if you're going to follow that logic, you better be ready to say that the jellyfish is more important than the man because they were made <laughs> before the humans were. So you got, don't follow that kind of uncritical kind of thinking. That's not accurate at all. But when you look at the way God created the humans and God created the animals, there's one distinct difference between the two. Because when God created the animals, when God created the animals, he created them synchronously at the same time. He created them in pairs at the same exact time. And yet when you look at humans, God did not create the humans synchronously. He created them asynchronously. He created the man first and then the woman. And the differences in the, in the animals, they're created at the same time. Humans are created at different times. There was a thinker, uh, Ons Erz von Balthasar, who wrote a book called Man in History, who has a paragraph 
where he makes the case that that is one of the core distinctions of the Imago Dei, hmm. is that human beings are the one animal or the one creature God has made that both has desire. Uh, and by the way, desire, animals have desire. If you've ever seen a dog eat, you don't know what desire is. Humans are the only creatures God has made, made who simultaneously have the power for desire and the call to desire and the call to wait. And that the, the capacity for waiting for something is a unique human attribute that we were made to wait. Why is Jesus so long in coming back? We are waiting. What is God doing in the waiting? He is making us. Matthew 28 ends with Jesus saying, go into the whole world and preach. And the next chapter, Acts 1, the, Jesus says, wait. Apparently, part of the mission of God is waiting. And we've lived in a world that has exported all waiting. And it has created a world of complete dissatisfaction. Because when you no longer have to wait, you no longer find joy in the things that you receive. That's so good. That's so good, man. And waiting, it seems theologically, is always intertwined with faith, right? Wait, waiting cultivates. Waiting and faith, patience and faith kind of go hand in hand, like they, they interact with each other. I, I Again, I, you know, I, I would imagine you feel the, probably a similar way. Um, again, the intellectual side of me, I feel this very strongly, you know? Um, especially as, you know, as a writer of books, what happens when you, you know, you get an idea, you drop a proposal, you submit it to a, you know, usually two or three publishers, you might get a couple offers, you pick one, and then they say, okay, we need this thing by next year, August 1st, whatever. Like, and that deadline is usually a lot sooner. <laughs> my, my, my publishers listen to, uh, I'm not going to name them, but he listens to pretty much every episode. So this is the, this is those no, no slam. I get it. I, it, I, I get it. You, they have to have a deadline. They have to like plan. So I'm not, yes. it's just, it is what it is. That was a writer. Usually that deadline looks a little bit like, okay, uh, yeah, I, I can probably make that, you know? And then life fills up, you know, a couple rounds of COVID, <laughs> uh, family stuff, uh, another project that you sign on to, whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, you're three months out and you're like, there's no way I could do justice to this topic and meet that deadline. <laughs> you know? Yes, that's exactly um, right. And uh, I, I've tried the last few years, especially the last year, there's a, I haven't even read the book, but um, Eugene Peterson, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I just love that phrase. But I've, I've tried to step back from the rush of getting stuff out there and really trying to get back to kind of the pre-internet phase of, yeah, this may take me a few years to really think through. Or, or even like um, two examples in the podcast. Do you remember, do you remember way back, you know, 10 months ago when Josh Butler wrote an article for TGC yeah, yeah. and it yeah, blew Josh up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me, yeah. Too. me too. Me too. We talked extensively about it. I just brought this up on a, on a more recent podcast as well. But like, um, you know, the whole thing blew up and then, you know, everything, everybody's, you know, it just, you know, you go on, if you want on Twitter, it would just be chaotic, right? And I didn't, it took me like a month to respond, say anything, you know, and I was getting, you know, because I endorsed the book. And uh, people found out, you know, like, what do you think? What do you think? You don't know. I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking through it right now. I'm really thinking through. I'm going back. I'm reading the article. I'm talking to Josh. And not everybody has access to Josh, but I mean, uh, thinking through it, talking to other people, listening, listening. So like slowly forming 
kind of my response. And when I say slow, it was like a month. That's that's like nothing, you know? Yes. Um, but I remember just standing back and saying, to wait a month to really think through and how to respond to something that, that's just nothing, even that's short. But the fact that I didn't respond within a couple hours or a day, you know, people were like, what's going on? Where are you out on this? And by the time I responded, I think people moved on to the next thing, you know, whatever. Um, it's it's hard because it's like you're we're swimming in a river that's just moving really fast, and to try to grab onto a rock and say hold hold on slow, I'm going to slow down here a little bit and really try to navigate this. It's just it's so counterintuitive in the world we're living in, but I feel like it's so needed. It's so healthy for my soul. I, I get asked in my women ministry, you know, so where are you at? Didn't you get away for a couple of months and figure? I'm like. Yeah, yeah, I'm still thinking through the word kefale and what that means, you know, and it might be another year till I, you know, like, how long did it take the the lexicographers to know how this what this word means? You know, I, I mean, yeah. Anyway, I I I'm I'm all that to say, I'm trying to be more vigilant at being a more patient thinker, researcher, writer, and it's so incredibly hard. It's it's just you yes. go against the whole intellectual evangelical stream that we're living in do you again yes. i would love to hear yeah, yeah the the system the system rewards the system rewards fast responses yeah I, I will never forget that that hilarious story of um when bono uh reached out to eugene peterson to meet <laughs> and peterson didn't know who bono was he he just had no clue whatsoever, and it wasn't a ploy. Yeah. He he actually didn't know who the guy was. He was ignorant. You've had a, a guest on who talked about that story. Um, <laughs> when I heard that, there was something mm. prophetic about that ignorance. There was something prophetic in our culture around that ignorance that I gravitate towards in my soul that I don't have that I want. That I'm so wildly. There's another interview uh, that Peterson does where he he's asked about. Um, he, he was asked, I think Rick McKinley, my friend was, was interviewing him and, uh, some, somebody was interviewing Peterson and, and, and he was, was asked, you know, why don't you do these other things over here? Why don't you speak more? Why don't you? And he goes, well, cause, cause you know, I got, I got to do, I'm reading Jeremiah and they go, yeah, but you got these opportunities. Yeah. He goes, yeah, but it's Jeremiah. You know, I've, I've got to, I, I got to, it's like, that was his heart. He actually, at the end of the day. His huh. heart had been structured around desiring God uh, at, at his deepest core. And I, I hear that. And it sounds like only something somebody from a previous generation would do. But I want that. I want that holy ignorance of the ways of the world to such a degree that, you know, um, my friend, I, I never want to come into a podcast to plug a podcast. My friend Nijay Gupta and I uh, oh, have a yeah, podcast no. called Slow, Slow Theology. Yeah. And the whole premise of the podcast is that our theological reflection should be the thing that we take the slowest to do, that we do a meditative approach towards theology. We got to remember in the ancient world, when churches would write Paul a letter, they'd be like, hey, Paul, you know, tell us about the Trinity. Tell us about the Lord's Supper. Tell us about, you know, what we're supposed to do with the gospel. All these, we got people sleeping with each other. What do you want us to do? When people would write Paul those letters or, or the letters that were written in the New Testament, all 13 Paul's letters, it would have taken a year or two years for those letters to show up. And, and what that means is in, in a world of immediacy where we can find theological clarity immediately, we no longer have to do the work of prayer. Mm. Oh, wow. They would have had to pray for two years. And I'm pro podcast, but that is one of the downsides to podcast is it creates immediate reflection. 
where we no longer have to take hard things and go deep with them for a long period of time because we can find immediate answers mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah. And in, a, in many respects, um, the podcast world is a blessing, but it can also be very dangerous. It's a little bit of both. I've been, I've been, I think about this all the time. I, we're, we're, I, mean, I feel like we're in the eye of the storm. That's not, not the best analogy, but like podcasting is blowing up in the last few years, right? And I just, we're not going to know the sociological or even spiritual impact and role it plays until for a while, right? It's, it's, like, it's almost like, you know, printing press was invented, what, 1450? It's almost like we're living in like 1455, you know? Like what impact mm. did literacy rates have on history of human civilization? They didn't really know what they had, the, lasting impact of 1455, you know, um, if I hope I got those dates right, I know it's a ballpark, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've had a few conversations with fellow podcasters. Like what is it? Uh, I've been thinking more specifically, what is an ecclesiology of podcasting? What role yes. does podcasting play in the, in the role of the rhythm of the church? Cause right now I feel like largely it's in comp can be in competition or simply at the podcast is posting sermons from the, the church, whatever. But, um, I would love to see some more thought go into how can podcasting be more ecclesiologically helpful and beneficial. And I, I don't know what that, you know, what that looks like. One of the, one of the interesting things that I've noticed about, um, and I have a theory about it. One of the interesting things I've noticed about the difference between how Protestants and Catholics responded to COVID uh, is that after COVID sort of began to settle down, um, Protestants really struggled, evangelicals in particular, really struggled to get people back to church. Um, it, and it's been a very slow return for a lot of communities. Yet when you talk to Catholics, they did not have that struggle at all. Wow. There I was see no, where you're going. I would, that, keep going. I yeah. can see where. <laughs> well, well there, was, there, was, there was no like convincing people to come back. And the reason, I, I, here's my theory on why that's the case, is that the Protestant tradition has such a high value of the spoken word as the central part of the service that during COVID they figured out you can get that mm, elsewhere. Yeah. But in the Catholic tradition, the central moment in the service is the sacrament of Eucharist and you can't replace that. That, that is irreplaceable. And I think it's simply on, on, a, on a, on an evangelical level, I think we've essentially displaced the, the church gathering because we can find the highest thing in better preachers or better communicators and Catholics, to be frank, I think the Catholics are onto something. Well, and arc, I mean, um, I mean, the whole uh, sacred space, smells, incense. I mean, uh, Catholic or even Eastern traditions, it's a whole body experience. A buddy of mine who converted to Eastern Orthodoxy pointed this out. Like, like you know, in Protestant evangelicalism, it's basically you have like one sense that's being you know your 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 ears or whatever. You go into a more Eastern context, and your whole body is ex is, is experiencing community and worship and and liturgy and everything. But, Yep. Smell. Yeah. Um, what during um, COVID, a family member of mine who's been in AA for years um, told me that for n a couple of weeks when COVID started, uh, AA continued to do uh, AA continued to do meetings over Zoom. Um, and so for a little bit, they kept doing it, but they figured out that you can't do AA meetings over Zoom because there's one thing you can't do with the drunk. You can't smell. <laughs> and the only way to know if somebody's being truthful is to be in the room with them and smell them. And it's not a mistake that that the, the smell matters. And I would say if it, if it doesn't smell, is, is it a sacred space? Again, not diminishing yeah. the importance of podcasts. You have one, I have one, but there's something lost when we can't smell. And COVID of course was the loss of smell. And we've, so we've become a world uh, that, that is almost like, or, or sort of, yeah, metaphorically we become a, 
a smellless world. The, the, even the story of Jesus is all about smell. He's born in a barn with animals. It would have stunk like, it would, it would have stunk so bad. When he dies on the cross, what happened just a few days earlier? He's anointed with frankincense. And in that world, you do not shower. He is born into a world that smells like death. And he leaves the world smelling like glory. Golly, they just come up with that. So, so, so the come whole, on, man. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole smell, we, we are, the church is the aroma of Christ. So you don't have smell. What do you have? That's crazy, man. I, a theology of smell. <laughs> yeah. But why did God yeah. create? I mean, yeah. I, gosh, I've been chased out so many tangents. And we're just, and smell. Oh, here's one more thing. My friend, Matthew goodness. Sleet told me this. Yeah. He's a doctor. Matthew Sleet told me this. Smell. Um, your smell, your nose goes right by the part of your brain. So the air that goes in goes right by the part of your brain. So this is from a doctor. I'm not making this comes, it goes right by the part, part of the brain where your memories are held, which is why you can be walking down the street and smell this weird thing. And all of a sudden you're back in second grade classroom. Oh my gosh. So your smells and your memories are connected. And I, I think that we were made, what would the garden of Eden have smelled like? I think every human being has in their core memory a smell of the garden and we are all longing for it we're chasing that smell we know that smell and every once in a while we smell it and we go like wait i remember c.s lewis talked about this the, the longing for eden that we were made with that longing and that and from time to time we get that smell and that is that is god's the memories of god we were made for that you know um yeah yeah that, on, on the smell thing, so I started riding a motorcycle nine, ten years ago. Ten years, it's been that long. Um, and they, I immediately recognize when you're driving around town in a motorcycle, you smell so many different things. Like I started riding in Simi Valley where you're, it's a blend of neighborhoods, but then sometimes you go out into the, the foothills and it's kind of deserty and stuff and the temperature changes. Like you go into a little valley and all of a sudden it gets kind of colder and you go out into a field and you smell the the field smell or whatever. And then, you, you know, you go buy a, a burger joint, or, you know, like you just smell life. I remember a buddy of mine, Andrew Steinfeld, who, who got me into riding my Harley, he, um, uh, said, yeah, he's just like, I can't stand riding in cars because he can't smell anything. It's huh. crazy. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. See a dog, watch a dog put its head out the window. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, they're just like, because dogs are all smell. I mean, they're just like, it's like a euphoric. Yeah. It's it's like being on on ecstasy and just like taking it all in. I mean, yeah, we okay. we're, we are we are smelling we are smelling creatures, um, and 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 we were we were made to smell. And there's a reason church smell is what it is. The church should church should smell. Golly, AJ, I gotta run, and uh, I've taken you up to about an hour. But again, your book. Tell me the uh, so gift of thorns, Jesus the flesh, and the war of our wants. It comes out fe- February twentieth. Did I get that right? Um, End of February. Yep. Um, and it's um, obviously on on pre pre order right now. But um, yeah, thank you for allowing me to share about it. And um, it's a book that I, I I long to see in the hands of people who have walked through. Well, I, I rarely, if ever do this, recommend books I haven't read, but because I know you and I've read uh, uh, almost all of your other books, I, I'm going to go ahead and just recommend this as as yeah. worthy to be read. Um, mm. Yeah, without having read any of it. But yeah. uh, AJ, yeah. thank you so much for the work you do. It's, it's just an honor and pleasure. You're one of the most encouraging yeah. people I know. So um, yeah, keep up the great work. Preston, yeah. your ministry and your work is transforming lives uh, and you are a blessing to so many. Keep up the work you do, please. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. 
This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.